mean, I, so it even goes to a deeper, or maybe not a deeper, but an additional point. And I'm not sure if you, you guys want to comment on this, but I certainly will is this idea that now, you know, you have these other companies that are coming, uh, coming out with new quote unquote new, uh, lenses that are materials that are, have been around for, you know, 20, 30, 40 years, maybe or close to 40 years. And they're just repurposing them. And, um, and, really the the cost to the patient right that's the that's the approach is that well we're going to reduce the cost to patients only going to cost this much per month but really when you look at that it's not any different than most of the the lenses that we're talking about right when the rubber meets the road but they don't have to go through any of that or maybe they do but they don't have to go through any of that creating all the new stuff right how do we get these new things to market and and what it tells me is that you know with some of the some of the companies and I'll just I'll leave it at that uh, that are advertising to patients directly as a new product, um, but all it is is a repurposed old product. Well, the only thing is new is that you're you're going to circumvent the doctor-patient relationship to sell you more of that product, right? And and, and the um, and the lack of what goes into that, I mean, it's just it's phenomenal. And patients don't understand that. Uh, and and I think even even in a lot of cases, Steve Rosinski, to your point, as us doctors don't understand that. We don't understand that, like um, all those steps that it takes to create a new lens and to be beneficial to patients. Um, there, I mean, I'm starting to think about like the cost involved in all of that. It makes sense, and the fact that that it can still be delivered at a price to the patient that is basically very similar to the price that they can get 20 or 30 year old technology that's just been kind of repackaged and smashed together, and here you go. It's kind of phenomenal to me, but you may or might not want to comment on that, but I just think it's really interesting. You know, I, I do think so. that there is, um, often people use the words innovation and new as, uh, interchangeable words. And so what I would, what I would encourage doctors to do when a, a product comes to market is, is ask the questions and determine for themselves if it's, um, new and innovative or just new. And, and what problem does it solve for their patients? Because ultimately, that's why patients come in to see us. They come in because they have a vision problem. Companies like Cooper Vision are developing products and innovating products to solve problems. And so if we've done our job right, and we've selected the right things to develop and test and bring to market, then we can be very specific with with our customers and with eye care professionals and say this was developed specifically with this in mind and you've heard about the things that we we thought about with my day how do we get a silicone hydrogel lens that handles the way we want it that gives the oxygen transmissibility and the comfort all in one those were very specific objectives and and we achieved them and so that is a very specific conversation now that the eye care professional can have with their patients who who have either complained about those things or where the doctor is seeing the um, ill effects of perhaps not having some of those things when they look into the slit lamp. And so making those connections, first, why is this lens here? What is it? What problem does it solve? And then effectively communicating that to patients, that's really the end-to-end experience. And that's what's going to keep your patients, um, patients coming back with that perfect connection of, I have the product I need, personalized to my needs and I know every time I come back when there's something new 
that makes my life better, I'm in the right place to get that. Hello and welcome to Chris World Podcast on iCode Media. Today I had a great conversation with Drs. Michelle Andrews, Steve Diamanti, and Steve Rosinski from CooperVision to talk about how do you bring a contact lens to market? What are the types of things that you're thinking about? And then also, what are the types of things that the R&D team, that's what Steve Diamanti does, uh, to actually create new compounds that are going to be biocompatible with the eye? And then how, did that, how does that translate into patient comfort and, um, and, and ability to generate a new lens into a marketplace? So I thought it was a really great conversation to think about uh, all the steps that lead into what happens when we're having a new contact lens uh, for our patients that can solve different vision problems. So with that, please enjoy our conversation. As always, be sure to subscribe to the podcast, write a review, and share it with your friends. How does it occur that that Cooper or any other company would say, look, we want to develop a new contact lens. These are the things we want it to do. I mean, how does that all happen? Yeah, it's it's a great question, Chris. And and the coolest thing with, um, you know, obviously I'm going to talk about what we did with my day, but yeah. there are a, a lot of factors that you could really generalize to, to any product development. The cool thing with contact lens product development and how we approach it from Cooper Vision is that um, the ECP is actually very central to our product development journey. And so what I mean by that is um, when I was part of research and development, we actually hosted quite a few key opinion leader, um, almost uh, symposia at R&D. And so we would get key opinion leaders in and ask them, you know, what, what are the gaps in the market right now? What, you know, aren't the current contact lenses you have available fulfilling? Then where is it that patient contact lens needs aren't being met that we could try to work on? And so it's really something that kind of starts with gaining those insights uh, from doctors. What were you hearing with, you know, that, so that again, kind of takes us back at that time would have been 2011, 2010 or so. Uh, and so when, when that's the case, what types of things were you hearing from your opinion leaders that were saying, look, Steve, we need to fill this gap? One thing we were seeing both from academics as well as practicing optometrists was this whole idea that um, silicone hydrogel reusable lenses had started to become uh, very commonplace, right? So there was a bit of a gap when those materials were first introduced before they became the majority market share. But increasingly, we were seeing adoption of that. But conversely, on the one-day side, that was a fairly new modality. And most of the products in that space were hydrogels. So there was sort of this weird um, position at the time where there was evidence that upgrading to a one-day contact lens had some benefits for convenience and compliance. Uh, but then there weren't options, there weren't many options to take someone from the silicone hydrogel material they were in, um, in a reusable lens, directly into that same material in a one-day space. Um, so I, I know, uh, you know, Steve Rosinski was, was practicing at that time. So I don't know if you want to come in and kind of share, you know, how it was as a, as a practicing optometrist at the time and what you were facing. No, thanks, Steve. And, you know, with that, I definitely would say that for me, it made me second guess a little bit about 
taking patients from a silicone hydrogel material, whether it was a two-week or a monthly contact lens, and transitioning them into a one-day. And from that standpoint, I thought about it and said, I, I want to transition more patients into one-days, but I also think that there's a little compromise here because we are really downgrading these patients if we are putting them into a one-day hydrogel from a standpoint of a material side of things. And to me, you know, with my partner at the time, we had always thought, well, I think at this point, let's continue to drive towards one days, but with the ultimate goal of having that one day silicone hydrogel. Yeah. So, so that's, um, so that, that's kind of takes it into, at that point, we had the trade-off within silicone hydrogel materials was this kind of classic trade-off between I can expand oxygen permeability, I can increase oxygen permeability, but I'm also going to increase the modulus of elasticity. And Steve Brzezinski, you and I know that, that one of the reasons that we would go classically, because I was in practice at that time too, to a one-day material was because we didn't want the frictional component of a, a reusable lens, right? The potential for that, that that could irritate the upper eyelids. And so then at that time, really, there was no other option for us to go to a one-day lens that wouldn't significantly increase the modulus of elasticity. So we're, we're trying to battle two things, right? The benefits of increased oxygen permeability with the potential for the materials we had at that time um, of, of being more irritating to the eyelids. And so we, we definitely had the ability with the technology uh, within a, a BioFinity lens that, that kind of mirrored that. So both of you, I guess... Um, maybe Steve Diamante, how did you take the idea of keeping a modulus low, uh, but also increasing the permeability so we can get kind of the best of both worlds in a daily lens? That was really the crux of, of what we were trying to accomplish, right? Because we knew that in some ways, those one-day hydrogels were successful uh, in terms of, of comfort with wearers. So we wanted to try to retain that softness from the hydrogel materials, um, but much like you said, also have high oxygen permeability. And so one of the secret weapons we kind of had to bring to that is our research and development team at, at Cooper Vision. Not only can we kind of take off the shelf chemicals and formulate them to try to optimize contact lens properties, but we can actually make our own unique building blocks. And so, you know, you talked a little bit about biofinity and that was part of what made no, 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 start. Sorry, sorry. I, I got it. I want to dig into that a little bit. When you say building blocks, so there's this idea of Okay, you have these plastics. How do you know you have these these chemicals, that, these plastics that you know are biocompatible, and if, um, but you might want to make other modifications to that so that it can do more of something else. So what's interesting to me is like, how do you go about picking from the shelf? Obviously, you're a chemist. I'm not, but how do you go about picking from the shelf? to expand things like those silocs, you know, a silicone chain so that they can hold more oxygen and know that's going to be working. How does that work? We were very lucky at Cooper Vision because we had, a, uh, especially at the time I, I was uh, helping to develop the MyDay lens, we had a lot of previous technology to lean on. So we were kind of standing on the shoulders of giants. So the interesting thing with silicone hydrogel materials is early on, you're exactly right. We had this issue where you wanted the silicone for the oxygen permeability. But trying to get the water-loving ingredients in there was like mixing oil and water. And interestingly, some of the first silicone hydrogel lenses to come on market actually leveraged the same chemical building blocks as RGP lenses. So it was kind of no surprise that they were lower water content and needed coatings and things like that to be wettable. And so um, where we went 
is to try to design in the properties you want from the actual starting chemical building blocks. And so a great example is you have silicon, right? Great oxygen transmissibility. The problem is it doesn't like water. And, and any of you that wear those uh, wristbands for various causes, those are silicone rubber. And you'll know that they're not wettable, right? Water beads up on them. That's not what we want in a contact lens. So when we start from the chemical building blocks, the cool thing is, is that we can actually chemically stitch water loving groups onto those silicone chains to build in compatibility at the very basics. And so really, you know, that's a trick we played both with Biofinity and my day is essentially getting over this oil, uh, trying to blend oil with water thing and actually blending them chemically at the very beginning. And um, that's, that's a key part of how we're able to overcome, like you said, some of these compromises and build in that higher water content and that softer material. Is it purely just a chemical reaction where you add X uh, to Y and you know it's going to just uh, uh, place those on the ends uh, and then, then you know it's gonna align once the plastic is molded or, or however it's manufactured? That's a great question, Chris. And I think uh, you know part of it is the chemistry. So when we're making the building blocks, it's, it's an incredibly complex process, but we have those years of expertise knowing how to do it. Now, the second thing is when you start to combine those building blocks <laughs> and use the manufacturing process, right? Because everything starts out as a liquid and you have to link those molecules together to make the, the plastic that makes the contact lens. And the analogy I like to use for that is baking. Uh, so, you know, everybody starts with the same ingredients in baking or similar ingredients, <laughs> but depending on the process, you can end up with something really different, right? And so with contact lenses, it's the same. And one thing that makes uh, the chemistry and the process have to work together is it's not only what building blocks you start with, but how you link them together that determines the ultimate properties. So you can literally take a material that performed great in clinical studies, was nice and wettable on eye. You can change the process, not change the chemistry at all, mm. end up with a lens that's totally unwettable on the surface. So, so both are critically important. So Steve Rosinski, when you were involved in, in uh, some of the early pre-launch stuff, um, what sort of things were you experiencing uh, in that change? And, and then I guess, Steve, well, I'll, I'll stop there in terms of how you integrated that into your practice, Steve. Yeah, no, I, for me, I just felt like now I finally had this opportunity of you know, really practicing utilizing innovative products. And I know for myself and for my patients, I always wanted to bring that to them. And now we finally had a one-day contact lens that has the attributes associated with some of the hydrogels, like the nice aspect of it, like with, you know, with the soft contact lens. The, um, but there's also the standpoint of it, you're having the handling properties of a silicone hydrogel, and it was all able to mix together with the other benefits of a silicone hydrogel with increased oxygen. And so on my end, you know, going back to the hydrogels, I used to fit all of my kids or my new patients into one day contact lenses. And one of the biggest things that I felt was missing was patients were struggling with the application and removal of the contact lenses of some of the softer modulus contact lenses. So then for me, 
being able to provide a contact lens that you know hits all the check boxes of everything that we're looking for as a, as a practitioner and and for a patient but for really being able to provide the handling aspect of it now during transitioning a patient into this one day uh, of the my day contact lens and you know being able to look at all the other attributes as well and um, you know, just on my my end, I was expecting big things, anything new coming from Cooper Vision. And from that standpoint, it really um, it just had some great positive feedback to give back to the team at that point. Yes. So so that's interesting because you talked about the handling and, and Steve Diamante, you and I were talking last week about pretty in depth about this idea of, you know, a, a complete, you know, you get a lens that has just, it's has a very, very low modulus, right? You could, you could do that. But then your handling, as Steve Rosinski was just talking about, then your handling goes down the toilet, essentially. So um, how do you find that balance between, okay, this is the perfect amount of handling, but it also is going to feel comfortable on the eye and not have some of the other physical uh, potential for irritation? Where's that balance? That's a, that's a great question, Chris. And that's uh, part of why you know uh, uh, developing a new contact lens product can take anywhere from three to five years. Hmm because there's a lot of product development that is science and we we know with the different components we're adding in how those will affect the material properties but how that translates to on eye performance is a bit of the art and so you know we knew where we wanted to try to hit in terms of modulus as a number um but of course hitting that number and having the patient experience good handling is a different story. So typically what we do when we're developing a product is we would get the material properties to where we felt like um, we, we had delivered what we wanted in terms of the balance of oxygen permeability, wettability, uh, good handling, softness. And then we would start doing small scale clinical trials to understand how what we had built in from a chemistry perspective translated to performance on eye. Because that's really the the gold standard, right? Yeah, is is the performance on eye. Yeah, and then when you do that, so let's say you get to the point of having your performance on eye. How many of those smaller scale clinical trials exist where you're saying, "Oh, we we actually missed the mark on this on this modulus. We need to make it a little bit stiffer." And then you start all over again, or you kind of have this this okay. If this happens, then we've got this backup. If that happens, we have that backup. What does that work look like? Yeah, that's that's a great question, Chris. And and with these uh, contact lens developments, we're literally making hundreds and even over a thousand different formulations. So usually, what we'll have is we'll have four or five leading candidates, and we will do lab testing for things like you know wettability in the lab. What we've found over time is that those lab tests don't always translate to on eye performance. And so if you have really bad wettability in the lab, you're probably going to have bad wettability on eye. Mm -hmm. The opposite isn't true. So we've definitely had materials that looked really great on paper and in the lab, and we put them on eye and they didn't meet our expectations. And so, yeah, we always narrow down the list to several leading formulations. And that's really where it comes to what you talk about is, is balancing the properties, right? Because what a contact lens wearer needs is not, you know, something that's extremely wettable, but impossible to handle, right? It's really the balance of all those properties. And so um, it's really the on-eye tests that help us distinguish the best balance of properties between those leading candidates. 
can you have would would it is it so then what about like base curve and edge design do you have sort of like a go-to base base curve and diameter that that is sort of your wheelhouse that know that you know in the in the united states of america this is going to fit this you know this proportion of of the population how do you look at that so that's a really interesting question so um we will usually optimize the material first, and then we try to use designs that we have uh, from history that we know have, be, have been successful in terms of edge design. But those um, designs will have to be tweaked slightly hmm. because it is a different material. Now with base curve, it's incredibly interesting because what we know from research is in older silicon hydro materials, right? There used to be a very strong dogma about you have to fit the base curve and diameter to the K readings of the patient. Mm -hmm. What we've since found in research, and I'll let Steve talk to this from a clinical aspect, is that modulus is actually a very key component of that. So what you find is it's not just base curve and diameter, it's base curve and diameter and modulus. And the lower your modulus, uh, effectively the more wiggle room you have to mm -hmm. fit a larger range of corneal shapes because effectively that material can deform and uh, drape over different shapes. And so that's kind of from the chemistry side um, and, and more the design side, how we look at it. Steve, I don't know if you wanna add a little bit how that looks when you're actually fitting these lenses. Yeah, absolutely. And when you're, you know, we're looking as a practitioner, we want a contact lens to fit as many patients as possible. And I imagine, you know, that's what's going in when, you know, Steve and the R&D team is trying to figure out under this bell curve, what's the maximum number of patients that really could benefit from this. And, and I, you know, with being able to bring the MyDay with the modulus of MyDay and the soft material that it is, um, that's what I was able to notice as well. You're able to have a contact lens that has, that does have a base curve, you know, of 8.4, but then it also is able to fit more patients from the standpoint of the modulus itself. So yeah, Steve, great point for bringing that up because it really does make a difference because not all eight, four base curves uh, across the board of other manufacturers are the same and modulus does come in play to it. And from that standpoint, that's why you know, with our MyDay contact lens, we're able to see a large number of patients that are able to be fit successfully with it, um, with a base curve that traditionally would be thought of as more of like a steep base curve. Well, it's interesting, Steve Rosinski, because, um, you know, my, my perspective at this point is, um, is for most patients, for the majority of patients, unless they have a really steep cornea or a really big cornea, right? Like a very large HVID. Um, when I have patients that have discomfort issues, let's say, let's assume okay, that their ocular surface is pristine. It's not a dry eye issue at all. But if it's the case that they have discomfort issues from different lenses, my first thought isn't usually the base curve and diameter anymore, right? I, I've, I've really gotten to the point where you are, where I've, I'm thinking it's more about the material than it is about the base curve and diameter. Is that where you're thinking largely as well? Yes, absolutely. Um, base curve, in my mind, doesn't mean nearly as much as it, as it once used to. And I'm sure, Chris, that you you believe that same way. And um, and I do know that some practitioners are still rigid with those rules that if they see a steeper cornea, they have to fit a steeper base curve lens or a flatter cornea have to be with a flatter, flatter base curve lens. And, you know, I can say that I don't think that's the case um, anymore. And Chris, I think, would you, would you agree with that as well? 
Yeah, I mean, I think largely that's true. I mean, I think I think largely, you know, when you think about back to like your boards, your board examinations and, and memorizing all those different, you know, nuances and, and changes, if we make this change and, and really the same thing we do with um, with rigid lenses and scleral lenses and, and orthokeratology lenses today, we kind of think about those rise and runs and um, flattening is going to effectively do this to the vault and those sorts of things. But um, but I think with soft lens, it's not where I'm, it's, I'm, I agree with you. It's not what I'm really thinking about in terms of, of that thing that's not going to cause, that's going to cause a patient a problem or the thing that's causing that patient's symptom. Now that's not saying that, that they can't, right? I, I think that, that, that they can, but I think it's more an issue of, as you're saying, and that's interesting because I haven't really thought through why my sense is like that, but that makes more sense if I'm using more lenses that have a, uh, a lower modulus that are a little bit more to what you're saying. Yeah. So, um, so then talk about the, the edge design, Steve, Steve Diamante, if, if you were going to have a, the beginning of a, an edge design, right. And you send it out to your, you know, your small clinical trials. Um, how do you know that it's the design? Like what sorts of, of, but maybe Steve Rosinski, let's ask you this. Like if you're thinking about an, uh, an edge design being an issue, what types of questions might you ask? Or even from a research standpoint, Steve Diamanti, what types of questions would you ask to tease that aspect out, of, out to know that one edge design that's worked well in one um, material before may not be the best edge design for this material? So Steve Diamanti, I'll let you start with it from your side of things, and then I can transition to mine. Sure. So, you know, Cooper Vision has traditionally used what we call a, a rounded edge design because we feel like it is a nice kind of happy medium um, between avoiding excessive movement, which we know can lead to discomfort, but also not fitting so tight that it cuts off tear exchange behind the lens. So, you know, that's where we start from. And we've leveraged that design on, on most of our contact lenses. So with the MyDay development, we'd start with the rounded edge design concept from Biofinity and adapt that design to the MyDay material. So we know that edge design can have a big impact on insertion comfort. So that's something we'd be looking at um, from the early clinical trials we're doing. And we also know that the combination of the material properties, right, like the surface lubricity, the wettability combined with the lens shape and the edge will have an impact on movement. So one of the first things we do in these early clinical trials is always the, the classic things you see in these uh, peer-reviewed clinical studies, right? Lens centration, um, lens movement, right? Lens tightness. So we'll, we'll look at these and make sure we're in that optimal range. And if the lens we feel is fitting too tight or too loose, that's when we can start to change that lens edge slightly um, to tailor the on-eye performance in terms of movement and centration to optimize everything. Yeah. That's what it looks like kind of from the R&D side. Steve, I don't know if you want to talk about, you know, once these materials are already developed, how does it look when you're, you're fitting different designs? Yeah, I mean, from the standpoint as, you know, Chris, is, as you know, that if a contact lens isn't going to be comfortable, then a patient's not going to want to wear it. And in the digital era that we live in and with how many hours we put our contact lenses through, um, we want a contact lens that's going to be comfortable when you put it in um, to the same point as when you take it out in the evening. Um, so there's the 
the edge design aspect of things that really, you know, that's one call that you can have. And, you know, when we're looking at edge designs, those and, and looking overall comfort though, too, in my opinion, what really goes to uh, in thinking about that is more of a contact lens and its ability to retain moisture or its ability to stay stay wettable or stay inherently wettable um, as well. And, you know, from, from that side of things, maybe that's something more that Steve can talk to, um, but, you know, definitely a comfort issue uh, from the time you put it in and then also through lasting throughout the days for those 12, 14, 16 hours of wear that your patients are going to be wearing that contact lens for. Right. Well, yeah. So, so th- thanks, Steve. Steve R. <laughs> yeah. Steve D. If you think about, um, if you think about to, to bring that point up that, that Steve Rosinski was just talking about, what, um, you know, how then do you, how then do you make it so that, um, that you don't have to add additional things to a lens? Like what are you doing to the surface so that it, it isn't being, ha- you're not having to do surface treatments that are going to wear off throughout wear, the wear time, et cetera. I'm glad that Steve brought that up. It's really the comfort as the day goes on that's critically important. I'll always joke that no one dropped out of contact lenses because of poor insertion comfort. It's more what's changing throughout the day. We seek to minimize change in contact lens performance throughout the day by the way we create our contact lens material. And we call that natural wettability. So really the whole concept is that the material, as you go from the very center of the lens out to the surface, we've built in that wettability throughout, right? So we have a very continuous uh, material that has water-loving groups distributed throughout. And so we believe that's why with our contact lenses, we are able to retain moisture um, pretty strongly. This is something we've looked at. And we know with the the My Day, um, we did a study where people wore the lens and then took it off and we measured the water loss. And it actually maintained 99.7% of its original moisture. That's pretty stellar considering you're looking at moisture retention on off. The reason we think we're able to do that is because those water loving groups are everywhere throughout the lens. We're not necessarily relying on the surface to retain that moisture. We're relying on the whole contact lens and we have a fairly large amount of moisture within the lens itself. Now let's talk more about our clinical testing strategy when we're developing a contact. First, we'll do shorter clinical trials just because they're easier to do. So we'll look at comfort over six hours, wettability over six hours. But of course, we know no one um, wears contact lenses for short periods of time anymore. And so as we get more confident that the material is performing well in those short clinical trials, we'll start to ratchet up those times and also expand the patient base. And the idea is that um, once we go to market, we're very confident. Uh, and in the clinical performance in real world conditions. Yeah. So then, um, so I want to take you back to that, to that kind of ramping up phase. So first you've, you've got a new material. So you start with a small group because the FDA is going to want to say, okay, we've got a small group of people. So how does, can you walk me through that? Just, you know, at a high level, okay, we've got this small group. It's about this many people. Okay. Uh, and then if you make a change, do you have to all of a sudden be like, oh no, we got to start all the way over again? I mean, how does that how does that all work? Yeah, so before we will do most of our um, clinical testing to optimize the material before we would submit a material to the FDA for approval, right? So, and so you can do that. That's actually okay. You can you can under under circumstances you can have patients under controlled settings put this lens on their eye to know that it's going to be biocompatible and you're not going to have a problem once you get into that 
Yeah, absolutely. Now that being said, um, the production of the lenses for clinical testing is done under controlled conditions. So even though it's not a commercial manufacturing setting, um, the manufacture of those lenses is done in pilot plants that have the same level of quality control and consistency that we'd have in our larger manufacturing plants. So that is something where there are um, regulations that we have to um, account for the safety of the contact lenses, the biocompatibility. Um, we have to do a variety of chemical and biocompatibility testing before the lens goes on a single patient. So it's, it's certainly not a, not a free for all. Um, we, no, no, I, that's, I, to that, to that <laughs> yeah. point, I mean, that's exactly what, what's, what's just so amazing when you start to think about this and is when you're developing anything, especially in the healthcare realm, it's like, you know, you've got all these different parameters and all these different things that could, I'll say go wrong, but that's not the right, that's not the right term. Just these different things that you may, that may have to adjust what you're doing. And that all takes time and it all takes expertise. So then you get it onto those, those patients' eyes. Is it, is it the same group of patients that you're always working with or, or how to, you know, within those, those pilot um, plants or how does that all work? Yeah. So even for those small clinical studies I was, I was talking about, we have to um, conform to the same types of clinical protocols that you would in larger studies. So we have to have an independent review board. We have to have, um, you know, ethics, responsibilities, uh, and all these things that would happen in a larger clinical trial. Uh, so often with these smaller clinical trials, we'll start at actually our, our in-house, um, you know, clinical study setup within research and development. Um, and take volunteers there. The nice thing with um, the partnerships we've built up over time is we have uh, partnerships with, you know, quite a few of the major research universities in contact lens materials throughout the United States. So as we start to ratchet up both the numbers of the clinical testing, as well as the rigor we want to apply, we partner with these different groups like University of Houston, Berkeley, some of these well-known optometry schools, um, because they're really set up better to recruit uh, volunteers for clinical trials. Um, they might have some specialized equipment and ability to do specialized measurements that we can't do in-house. And the other thing that's really nice is it allows us to understand how the lens will perform in different geographical areas, as well as with different ethnicities of patients, right? Because uh, I'm yeah. sure the humidity inside uh, your house right now is a lot different than what it is out here in California. And so we want to make sure, and that's part of how I said, you know, to understand that we'll have the consistent clinical performance that we expect. That's part of how we can build that up is by not only building up the number of patients that we're looking at, but also the diversity of patients and the diversity of environments that we're testing the lenses. In. Yeah, that's interesting. So then, um, so then you get it to pass that period. You're pretty confident that it's going to work. And now you basically submitted it to the FDA and then you bring guys like uh, Steven essentially, right. And yeah. uh, Steve Brzezinski in and say, Hey, Steve, we're going to give you this pre-launch. And the, the goal of the pre-launch is to do what exactly is it? Is it to start to ramp up the, is it to get feedback that you can actually take action on? Like if you get it to Steve's hand, it's like, this is not doing what we think it was doing based on all, all those other scenarios. And, and is it also to ramp up, you know, kind of the development of production? I mean, how does that work? Well, I'll definitely let um, Steve and Michelle handle the bulk of that question because sure. they've been involved in, in much more of these uh, assessments than I have. But I think from 
the R&D side, that's kind of our official handoff. And we would expect that it will perform very well clinically. And I think what we're trying to gather in those trials is probably more specific information for the ECP and, and, and more details around, you know, what type of patient is this lens a good fit for and things like that. So I'll, I'll let Michelle and Steve talk to that because I know they've been involved in a lot of those. Yeah, uh, that's great. Michelle, what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, so the, the, the opportunity for a practicing ECP to trial lens on patients and some of these programs that we call in-market assessments, those occur post-FDA approval, but pre-launch into the marketplace. And so the entire process that, that Steve Diamante described is the processes that we go through to, to optimize the lens from a material and design standpoint. We use those series of clinical studies, and then we get approval for that lens. Mm -hmm. Then we want to bring it to a group of ECPs in the marketplace and further our real life understanding of that lens and, and get more information. And so the lenses that we would bring to an in-market assessment, and it'd be, it would vary the number of practices that we would go to, but we would ask them to, to just prescribe that lens as they would normally use it in their clinic. So unlike the clinical trials, pre-approval that are very much controlled, where the investigators are told um, what type of patients to recruit for, exactly how to fit the lens, exactly what measurements to take, exactly when to change the prescription or, or make adjustments, because we want those to be controlled, because those are, are very important claims we're going to want to make um, or not be able to make about the performance of the lens. The in-market assessment then tells us in a real-life setting, in the, in the way that doctors would prescribe it on their own, what kind of experiences do they have with the lens? So we're not tracking information patient by patient in a controlled environment. We're getting feedback from doctors about how they prescribe in the, the lens in the natural environment. That information then in conjunction with the clinical study information then becomes part of the launch material when we bring the product to the larger marketplace. Hmm. Okay. And it gives, it gives the doctors, um, there's always a, a, a great excitement about opportunity, not only to participate in clinical trials, but to participate as a, in these in-market assessments, because I think it's, it's really nice to be in the know um, and to be first. So um, it's, there's, we always have a lot of hand raisers when, when new products are coming to market for that purpose. Yeah. Yeah. So, so then if, if uh, Steve Diamante and his team have done a good job, then the the clinical, the, the, you know, the very first step into market will just verify what, what he has, uh, found, you know, found in, in research. Um, have do you, are you aware of any situation where it wasn't and you had to, maybe it wasn't you, but any other, you don't have to mention names of companies, but where that you've, you've brought it out, they brought it out. It's like, Whoa, this is not what we thought was going to happen. How, how would that get managed? Like in theory, how would that get managed? Yeah, so what we learn in, in the in-market assessment is largely because the, the performance of the lens is, is really well known before we bring the product into marketplace. What we tend to learn through these in-market assessments is how the doctor speaks effectively to the lens with patients. We learn things about whether or not patients who we thought would 
enjoy the lens or want to try the lens, whether they do or not. So we learn a lot about, about doctor-patient communication, um, what we learn information about when that patient comes back for follow-up. And again, in being in a real-world um, situation, the way we might talk about that lens or think we're going to bring that lens to market from a doctor-patient communication standpoint may change once we realize that, you know what, we, we thought saying it like that, um, or we thought doctors would say it like that, but they really don't. They say it like this. Um, that's the kind of information that really helps us fine tune it so that when it does, when those final support materials and those final chair side aids and the videos and all the, the things that you ultimately see get fine tuned through that process. So this is, so then um, I got just a, a few more follow-up questions. And then if I'm missing any topics that I should be thinking through, like, again, this, this is all interesting to me because I'm, 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 I'm a clinician, right? I, I have not been involved in any of these things at all. And so it, it's just kind of like a peek behind the curtain in terms of how this all works. So if I'm missing something that you all find understanding that is, is interesting, I'd love to hear that as well. But when, um, when you think about like this, um, you know, if you're going to develop a new lens, start to finish, Steve, you said three to five years. Um, is that, uh, how much, so you, you look in advance to see what types of issues are you trying to solve based on talking to guys like Steve Rosinski, right? And myself potentially. And then um, like how much of just the chemical literature uh, and that sort of stuff do you dig through or maybe even other, what other companies might be doing or what other companies might be kind of looking at, like how much of that goes into, okay, now we're going to plan for, because it's going to be three to five years, which means that, you know, it's going to have a, an uptick we get through this process. Well, we got to know that we're already going to be on the forefront now, but also the forefront for five years. So how does that work? Or is there any thought given to that? And I always joke that that's the, actually the hardest part of product development is that you have to predict the future because you're right. You know, when we design a lens, we can't design it for the market that's here today. We need to try to anticipate when the, where the market's going to be in three to five years. And so um, that's probably the hardest part. So honestly, that's a very cross-functional um, job, right? We get a lot of inputs from marketing, kind of where they're seeing things going or going um, from, you know, eye care practitioners like yourself that are kind of on the cutting edge of technology, also contact lens researchers. And so it's, um, you know, a lot of research that goes into it. Um, but there also is a little bit like, you know, um, licking your finger and putting up to the right? Uh, you you kind of have to take a gamble. Um, and so the, the nice thing is, is with that, um, so we talked about product development, but mm -hmm. really product you see at the end of the day is like the tip of the iceberg. So you asked about, you know, do we look in the literature? Are we doing other things? Probably for every product that makes it to market, there were five to six other product development projects that didn't make it either because there were technological hurdles we couldn't overcome or because, you know, we took a gamble about where the market would be and the commercial landscape changed and that product was no longer needed. Um, and then even one step back from that, there's building all the expertise that allows us to have the kind of the, the core um, strengths to create these products. So we talked about, uh, you know, with my day, we, we designed these brand new building blocks 
Well, the reason we could do that is everything we had learned when we were actually designing Biofinity, right? And Biofinity was a product that was really successful, but R&D didn't stop, right? We continued to experiment in building our strength in, in chemistry and building our strength in understanding how chemistry dictates contact lens properties. And so, um, you know, while it may have been three to five years to develop a product, there could be a, a decade of expertise and research, fundamental research behind that development project. And so it's almost like a never ending wheel, right? We talked about how when we start out, we want to get input from the ECP on where the market needs are. And we just talked about how with the in-market assessment, as soon as R&D hands it off, we give it to you guys, right? For how are you going to use this in the real world? Where's the feedback? And then from that, we continue to innovate and improve. So it's really, uh, R&D never gets a break. <laughs> we have a big launch, you know, everybody's really excited. Uh, but it's like, okay, let's keep going because we know um, people's needs continue to get um, harder and harder, right? People stare at screens more. People are going to abuse their eyes. The better of a contact lens material we can make, it just means people can now wear their lenses for 16 hours instead of 12. Right? So yeah. we've got to continue to make things better to keep up with those trends. Yeah. It's really, and, I, mean, I guess, oh, go ahead, Steve, please. Yeah. And to jump off of that, and when we, when a new lens comes out, I'm sure Chris, you know, we, we do get excited about a new lens, but I also like to think about what's the technology backing that, you know, what's the backbone technology behind that new lens. And we're talking my day, but behind the technology of, of my day. And, you know, that's what, for me, when I was fortunate enough and yes, uh, Michelle is very excited uh, to be one of the first doctors to have a fitting set in the country, uh, to be able to utilize that for my patients in my practice and to be able to utilize this new technology. Um, but when we think about it, we yes, we want a, a new technology, but we also want a proven design. We want proven materials that are really going to uh, just give us that much more strength when we are prescribing that contact lens. Um, so thinking about it from that standpoint, um, you know, it, you look at the whole process and how many years that go into it. And you know, just in myself, I remember when the MyDay lens came out, I had been prescribing it for a couple months at that point, and. I had the opportunity to actually go to the R&D facility in Pleasanton, California. And that is actually where I met Steve Diamante for the first time. And we were able to, he was able to take me through that process. And it wasn't really until that time did I realize what went into this. So I'm so glad that we're having this conversation because as us doctors, we see the end product. Correct. We have all these aspirations. We know what our patients need but we don't realize what goes into the whole backside of it for those three, five, seven, 10 years before that. And it was enlightening to me to see that because yes, I now had a lens that was new and innovative, um, yet still had the strong backbone of the biofinity technology. And especially when you talk about even my day torque, um, especially you know, when we're looking at that side of things, but it's not every day that you get to see that side of it. So I'm so glad that we're having this conversation because it really is enlightening to see, you know, what goes into a product when it really comes in a fitting set into your office that you can utilize for your patients. Yeah. I mean, I, so it, it even goes to a deeper or maybe not a deeper, but a, an additional point. And I'm not sure if you, you guys want to comment on this, but I certainly will is this idea that now, you know, you have these other companies that are coming, uh, coming out with new quote unquote new uh, lenses that are materials that are have been around for you know 20 30 40 
years, maybe or close to 40 years, and they're just repurposing them. And, um, and really the, the cost to the patient, right? That's the, that's the approach is that, well, we're going to reduce the cost of patients only going to cost this much per month. But really when you look at that, it's not any different than most of the, the lenses that we're talking about, right? When the rubber meets the road, but they don't have to go through any of that or maybe they do, but they don't have to go through any of that creating all the new stuff, right? How do we get these new things to market? And, and what it tells me is that, you know, with some of the, some of the companies, and I'll just, I'll leave it at that, uh, that are advertising to patients directly as a new product. Um, but all it is, is a repurposed old product. The only thing is new is that you're, you're going to circumvent the doctor patient relationship to sell you more of that product. Right. And, and the, um, and the lack of what goes into that, I mean, it's just it's phenomenal and patients don't understand that. Uh, and, and I think even, even in a lot of cases, Steve Rosinski, to your point, as us doctors don't understand that we don't understand that, like, um, all those steps that it takes to create a new lens and to be beneficial to patients, um, there, I mean, I'm starting to think about like the cost involved in all of that it makes sense. And the fact that, that it can still be delivered at a price to the patient that is basically very similar to the price that they can get 20 or 30 year old technology that's just been kind of repackaged and smashed together. And here you go. It's kind of phenomenal to me. But you may or might not want to comment on that. But I just think it's really interesting. You know, I, I do think so, that there is um, often people use the words innovation and new as uh, interchangeable words. And so what I would what I would encourage doctors to do when a, a product comes to market is, is ask the questions and determine for themselves if it's um, new and innovative or just new and, and what problem does it solve for their patients? Because ultimately, that's why patients come in to see us. They come in because they have a vision problem Companies like Cooper Vision are developing products and innovating products to solve problems. And so if we've done our job right and we've selected the right things to develop and test and bring to market, then we can be very specific with, with our customers, with eye care professionals and say, this was developed specifically with this in mind. And you've heard about the things that we, we thought about with my day. How do we get a silicone hydrogel lens? that handles the way we want it, but gives the oxygen transmissibility and the comfort all in one. Those were very specific objectives and, and we achieved them. And so that is a very specific conversation now that the eye care professional can have with their patients who, who have either complained about those things or where their doctor is seeing the um, ill effects of perhaps not having some of those things when they look into the slit lamp. And so making those connections first why is this lens here? What is it? What problem does it solve? And then effectively communicating that to patients. That's really the end to end experience. And that's what's going to keep your patients, um, patients coming back with that perfect connection of I have the product I need personalized to my needs. And I know every time I come back when there's something new that makes my life better, I'm in the right place to get that. Michelle Andrews, I'm, there's nothing else I can say. That is the best way to finish this conversation. Uh, awesome. Thank you so much for being on. Michelle Andrews, Steve Rosinski, Steve Diamante. Doctors, I appreciate your time. Uh, thanks for being on today.
Thank you.